Hello, I'm Faith Rogers, host of today's program, COVID-19, Keeping Up with a Moving Target. This is a Virology 101 episode of DKB Med Radio's Coronavirus Educational Series. Thank you for joining us. This activity is jointly provided by the Postgraduate Institute for Medicine, DKB Med, and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. Today's program is accredited for ANCC and AAPA credit, as well as AMA PRA Category 1 credits. Please visit our website for complete CE information. If you're tuning into our webcast, please click the red Claim Credit button in the webinar console to attest for credit. Otherwise, please visit covid19.dkbmed.com. Today's learning objective is to discuss immunology and virology as they pertain to COVID-19 transmission, disease course, and potential routes for treatment. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Regeneron Pharmaceuticals. All activity content and materials have been developed solely by the activity directors, planning committee members, and faculty presenters. And with us today, we have Dr. Mark Solkowski, Professor of Medicine at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and the Director of the Division of Infectious Diseases at Johns Hopkins Bayview Medical Center. Dr. Solkowski, thank you so much for joining today. Really appreciate it. Well, thank you. Uh, thanks for having me. It's a real pleasure to, to join everyone to talk about uh, SARS-CoV-2 infection and the um, immune response to this infection, particularly as we think about use of new modalities to treat, such as monoclonal antibodies and old modalities to treat infections like the convalescent plasma. So let's jump into it. The, the first slide that I wanna discuss is a schema of SARS-CoV-2 infection. And we have a, a picture here of the coronavirus, which is an RNA virus with this unique spike protein that we've all heard so much about. And the critical part about the spike protein is that the receptor binding domain, as we know now, binds to the ACE2 receptor and allows it to enter the cells. As we think about both the natural immune response as well as some of our therapeutics, what we're really focusing on for some of these, such as the monoclonals, is stopping that interaction between the spike protein and that ACE2 receptor. If we can stop it from entering cells, we can break this cycle of replication. And we'll get to that a bit later. So after the virus enters the cell, it then fuses with the vesicle, it releases RNA. The viral RNA is translated into uh, proteins and then a intact virus is released. Now, once these viruses are into our, our systems, into our uh, bodies, we start to have an immune response that occurs immediately with what's known as an innate immune response, and then very quickly with an adaptive immune response. I'll get into that in a bit. So as we look at the, the immune response, it's worth thinking about this timeline that we now know fairly well. When someone gets infected, we know there's this asymptomatic period where the virus has established its foothold. And I think one of the unique features about the SARS-CoV-2 virus is that we know now that while people are asymptomatic, there's high levels of virus. And that's depicted here on the figure in the very early curve. This virus level, of course, then triggers an immune response. The initial immune response really turns out to be a programmed response from our innate immune systems where patterns are recognized and we begin to make uh, 
inflammatory cytokines and other cytokines that respond to the virus. We also then trigger the development of specific uh, B cells and T cells that respond to the virus and begin to make antibodies. And as this infection evolves, we get clearance of virus that's shown here very quickly. And then you can also see that the emergence and development of these antibodies, memory B cells and T cells. And you'll see that these memory B cells and specific T cells uh, can persist for a long period of time. Now that's of course, one of the active debates right now after a natural infection or vaccination, how long do these antibodies remain and how long will our bodies remember the SARS-CoV-2 infection or vaccine? I do wanna highlight in this figure that after the SARS-CoV-2 infection, as I've alluded to, this innate re immune response is really critical. And we, at this time, we also have dendritic cells becoming activated and taking up viral antigens. These dendritic cells then present the antigen to a whole array of T cells, uh, T helper cells that aid other cells in the production of cytokines, uh, T regulatory cells that act a bit to dampen the response. And of course, as we get into the disease COVID-19, we think in some ways it's an overreaction by the immune system. There's of course cytotoxic T cells that uh, are able to kill infected cells and then follicular helper cells that help with the induction of antibodies. So working with then B cells uh, to make antibodies. And then as we resolve from the infection, we have these memory T cells, memory B cells that hopefully will pro provide long lasting immunity both with natural infection as well as uh, with vaccination. So let me focus a little bit more on this initial response with this cartoon. The thing that's important about the innate immune response is it is generally initially not pathogen specific. The innate immune response does learn and there is an adaptive component to it. But what I wanna focus on here is that when a pathogen is detected and it's detected by uh, the toll-like receptors shown here as TLR, and as well as by pathogen uh, receptor recognition, what these are recognizing is pathogen-associated molecular patterns and the pathogens themselves. And they are then triggering this idea that something is there, a molecular pattern that is not supposed to be there. Uh, oftentimes it's a, a double-stranded RNA, but other patterns are recognized. And once that occurs, you see this reaction depicted in the cartoon with activation of dendritic cells. These are the antigen-presenting cells. Activation of NK cells. And then you see the production of pro-inflammatory and antiviral cytokines. And you can see an array of effects that these have. Um, importantly, when people develop symptoms of SARS-CoV-2 infection or of other viruses for that matter, such as influenza, it's really these pro-inflammatory cytokines, particularly IL-1, that trigger the fever. And you know, one of the features of uh, SARS-CoV-2, of course, is that some people then go on to have this hyper-inflammatory state. 
So the immune system is no longer your friend, but now becoming a problem in terms of a lung disease. But then this initial response develops both an antiviral response, but as the previous slide depicted, uh, stimulates a full array of T cells and then as well as B cells to start to produce pathogen-specific antibodies. So an important component occurs with before the immune system begins to adapt. Now, if we look at the timing of the antibody response to SARS-CoV-2 infection, this was an early study uh, from patients infected in China. This was three hospitals where they looked at uh, 262 patients. And what you're seeing over to the left of this slide, the horizontal axis is days after symptom onset. And you can see uh, IgM antibodies uh, and IgG antibodies uh, developing. And we can see that in two to four days, uh, the percent positivity rate is some of the ballpark of 15 to 30%. But as we get a bit further out, and now as we get to about two weeks, as many as 90% of people had a detectable IgM or IgG antibody response to the, the virus itself. So this is a, a very rapid response. And typically what you would see is a resolution of clearing of the virus. In fact, in a number of the studies that have been done, when you get to about seven to days or so after the onset of symptoms, you're starting to see the antibodies form. And then when the natural antibody response is present, you begin to see a reduction in the presence of the virus itself. So the emergence of antibodies is correlated with resolution of the infection. Now, what the other side of this figure shows is the antibody levels. So the left is the positivity rate and the right is antibody levels. And as you can see, as they get further out, you're beginning to see uh, higher levels. And as I alluded to, you're seeing a lower rates of, of virus being detected. So antibody response is critical uh, to the resolution of this infection. And I'll, I'll pause to comment that we have seen cases in the literature of persistent a viral infection where the virus can be detected on nasal pharyngeal swabs uh, for many, many weeks. And oftentimes this is occurring in people that have a defective B cell or antibody response. And furthermore, it's thought that some of these people with persistent infection have given way to the emergence of some of these mutations that we've begun to see in different parts of the world. I'll talk a bit more about those. So the other question is, how long do these uh, antibodies persist and do they neutralize? So we've heard a lot of talk about neutralizing antibodies, and that's really the critical response. So what this figure depicts is a longitudinal assessment of antibody response at one and three months after symptom onset of people recovered from mild COVID-19. And we do see a potentially lower antibody response with mild compared to more advanced severe disease. And what the figure is depicting is we are seeing a decrease in the anti-receptor binding domain over time as we get to the second time point, 
You've got healthy control and then the uh, SARS-CoV-2 cohort. And if we look at the IgM and the IgA, you're beginning to see a decline, whereas IgG is fairly uh, consistent, but again, a little drop off. The important point is really depicted in these uh, figures F and H. And here they're looking at a couple of different assays. The first one is a surrogate virus neutralization test. And they're asking at point, time point, uh, one month and three months, are we seeing that the virus is neutralized by these antibodies? And this was a consistent response. Uh, plaque, uh, the figure H is the plaque reduction neutralization test in a very similar pattern that at three months, you still have persistent neutralization activity, which is I think really important as we think about uh, how long the immune system uh, can respond and to potential second infection. So let's look more at this issue of passive versus active immunity. What we've been talking about with the natural human response to SARS-CoV-2 infection is active immunity. It's pathogen specific and it's long lasting. But there is this limitation that we discussed that it requires time to build up. Initially, very few people don't have antibodies, but by day seven to 10, they start to have a high level of antibodies and we see hopefully viral clearance. Importantly, these individuals then have this long lasting protection through immune memory cells, T cells and B cells that are long lived and are specific to that pathogen. So if that person becomes exposed to the infection again, they can have immediate response. So the issue with waiting for active immunity to kind of kick in is that if we look at the natural history of SARS-CoV-2 infection, we know some people have minimal symptoms or they develop symptoms, their immune system responds, they clear the pathogen and they recover. And that's fantastic. Unfortunately, some people, as their immune system begins to respond, enter into a more severe pulmonary disease state, hallmark of hypoxemia. Some people require hospitalization. They develop a hyperinflammatory state sometimes requiring mechanical ventilation and ICU care. And all too often, we've seen people die from this infection. Now, if you look at the overall number of people who get the infection, most people won't die or suffer severe consequences. But we want to prevent that progression from early disease to this severe manifestation of COVID-19. And to do that, we can identify people at high risk to develop these severe complications. They include people of older age, people who are obese, people with cardiopulmonary disease, and people with immunosuppression. And what we can see in these folks is that they're more likely, if they become infected, to progress. So if we could target that group by delivering passive immunity, perhaps we could prevent them from getting sick with severe COVID-19. So the idea of passive immunity is not new and nor is it unique to SARS-CoV-2 infection. We've used the, uh, the use of exogenous antibodies in many situations. Uh, when we think about somebody with exposure to say, for example, hepatitis A during an outbreak, people will receive both vaccination as well as the delivery of immunoglobulins. So what we're doing in that case 
is providing immediate immunity, which can lead to neutralization of the virus and direct killing of the pathogen. But it is temporary. That's why we give the vaccine along with the immunoglobulin. But if we could use tools early on for people at high risk of progression, we could potentially prevent the development of COVID-19 severe manifestations, or if we could decrease the period someone is actually uh, shedding virus, maybe we could reduce the period of time that they are potentially transmitting to others. So let's talk a bit more about specific ways to transfer passively immunization. So if we start all the way to the right, there's convalescent plasma. And as many of you are aware, when SARS-CoV-2 first emerged, there was a big push. Looking back at literature that dates to uh, more than a century ago, where plasma from individuals who had recovered from serious infections was given to people who had been with early infection. So you're essentially passively transferring uh, their antibody response. A couple of issues. We've heard a lot of talk about the concentration of antibodies. We want to use high concentrations, not low concentrations. And this is a transfusion and it requires ABO blood matching. And that takes some time. In the middle is hyperimmune immunoglobulins. These are derived from plasma, but are a more standardized product. And this is being investigated in SARS-CoV-2. And then what's gotten a lot of attention has been monoclonal antibodies. These have been developed from people who are, have recovered from SARS-CoV-2 infection. They are interrogated, that is their, their antibody response to look for neutralizing antibodies. And then those neutralizing antibodies are man-made and in a scalable fashion. So they can also be modified to have a extended half-life and uh, typically have been given intravenously, although we are, there are, is work on uh, subcutaneous delivery of these as well. So let's talk a little bit more about this issue of passive immunization. I talked about convalescent plasma. This is where the donors who recover from COVID-19 undergo what's called donor apheresis after uh, a matching for, uh, compatibility. And then the plasma is uh, assessed. And what, what the recommendation is for use of this under the emergency authorization is to use high titer plasma. Now, not all the plasma that we've been giving in the United States and around the world has been high titer. That's important to note. And then an individual with COVID-19 is then given a unit or two of plasma and this is the plasma transfusion. And we're giving them neutralized antibodies. I'll point out a couple of things. The literature so far suggests that giving antibodies late in the course of COVID-19, when someone's already developed pulmonary complications, that's probably not the place we wanna do it. We wanna do it early. And there are still large ongoing studies looking at outpatients with early symptomatic disease, and we await information to find out if, those, if this approach will work. In the meantime, we've seen evidence emerge for monoclonal antibodies. And this is the BLAZE-1 study that was a randomized controlled trial of two monoclonal antibodies. Now, this study looked at people who were outpatients. It tried to enroll individuals early in the course of disease. It also tried to enroll individuals 
from a diverse population. You can see 42% were from the Latinx community and about 6% were black Americans. Many had risk factors. I talked about risk factors for progression and 44% were obese. They received a single IV administration of this combination antibody formulation. And what the figure depicts is at day 28 after infusion, the proportion of individuals who were hospitalized or had an emergency department visit. And what you can see in all patients is a reduction in the requirement for medical care from 5.8 to 0.9%. And if we then focus on this higher risk group, people with older age, cardiopulmonary risk factors, obesity, diabetes, this group had a dramatic reduction, more than 13% were, had a emergency room visit or hospitalization to zero. And this is evidence of protection uh, from serious disease and, and was the basis in part for hospitalization. Now, the initial release under a EUA of this was monotherapy with banlabivumab. What we've seen now is a shift towards combination therapy. And I'll come back to the point of why that's important. Similarly, the combination therapy from, Re from Regeneron has been studied and granted in EUA as well. A similar pattern. So this study looked again at outpatients with mild and moderate disease, trying to get them early. And again, an effort to enroll people with risk factors for severe COVID-19. So these people haven't gotten sick yet. They're not developing severe COVID pneumonia yet, but they may. And here, the administration of monoclonal antibodies led to a reduction, particularly among the high-risk individuals in hospitalization or ED visits. So an important outcome. And as you know, there is a effort to infuse antibodies really around the world uh, to help patients who may be at risk for uh, getting sick, particularly in the United States, there are uh, infusions in ERs as other, as well as other centers. But let's talk a bit about variants. We have seen the emergence of SARS-CoV-2 variants. I've listed them here, initially the one called B117. This is a variant first detected in the UK and was unique in that it had 23 mutations, including mutations in the receptor binding domain that appear to interact with this, uh, the part of the virus that interacts or binds to the human ACE2 receptor. So what we see in particular is that this mutation at position 501 appears to be associated with a more transmissible state. And in this context, this particular uh, virus has spread more quickly. And there are some reports of this being a more lethal pathogen as well, that that is still determining. Now, the next couple of variants that emerged was the B1351, uh, the so-called South African variant, which added a couple of different mutations. So it's got the 501 that the UK variant shares, but then it's added, in particular, I'll focus on this E484K. And Similarly, the P1 or Brazilian variant also has this key mutation in the receptor binder domain, E484K. And the concern here 
is that this may allow this particular variant to escape the antibody response that we've talked about. And there was a concern, particularly emerging from some of the vaccine trials, that individuals that it may not be as effective against the so-called B1351 variant, perhaps because of these mutations. So as we think about these variants, one of the concerns is that they could lead to reinfection, they could lead to reduced vaccine efficacy, and they could lead to an undermining of the monoclonal antibodies. So as we look at these uh, cartoons that look at the ACE2 binding sites, what these figures overlay is the ACE2 binding site and then the positions at where these monoclonal antibodies bind to the uh, receptor binding domain and how that might interact. And what I'll highlight is this E484 position, the K417, you can see depicting on where the antibodies tend to bind, that's the colors in these figures. So what we're seeing here is this E484 potentially affects the binding of the bandlamivumab component of the cocktail, as well as the cazorivimab component of the Regeneron cocktail. So part of what we're seeing with combination therapy is to try to overcome the idea that a particular virus may have a mutation that impacts the binding of one of the monoclonals, but not both. So by using two, you can increase the likelihood of effectiveness. In addition, potentially reduce the idea that you may have an escape virus. So important considerations and part of the reason why we're using a two monoclonal antibody cocktails in the current formulations under the EUA. Now, I mentioned a bit that these variants may lead to reinfection. And there's a couple of components here that bear discussion. One is the idea that perhaps the immunity wanes, and the other is that, that perhaps the virus that's circulating, perhaps the P1 virus, may be able to infect someone where the first strain was a different strain without these mutations. So the CDC has reported or is aware of cases of reinfection. They remain uncommon. And their guidance is in general that over the first 90 days that reinfection is unlikely. And they really are encouraging folks to look for reinfection if someone becomes symptomatic more than 90 days after recovery. This is an area that's evolving and we'll need to keep an eye on it. So to summarize, we've talked about the immune response to SARS-CoV-2 infection. And certainly there is a robust immune response. It begins with the innate immune system, a response that is not pathogen specific, and then very quickly leads to an adaptive immune response with engagement of uh, activated antigen-presenting cells, uh, this, the involvement of uh, T cells, and then the development of B cells that produce pathogen-specific antibodies, and ultimately memory T and B cells that pro provide long-term protection. We talked also about this idea of passive immunization that is protecting someone in the period of time it takes for the immune system to respond. And lastly, there is concern that these SARS-CoV-2 variants, particularly the uh, 
variants that have been linked to initially to South Africa and Brazil may have mutations that could both increase transmission and then decrease effectiveness of the neutralizing antibody response. So a lot to cover. Thank you for your attention and thanks for the opportunity. If you're tuning into our webcast, please click the red claim credit button in the webinar console to attest for credit. Otherwise, please visit covid19.dkbmed.com. Any questions or issues, feel free to email us at the address listed. To submit questions, please send them to qa at dkbmed.com. That's Q as in question, A as in answer, at dkbmed.com. Again, thanks for joining us and thank you for your dedication to your patients with COVID-19.